So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Curious to say, I wonder wonder why it is that way. I wonder why you see the world that way, right? But then perseverance. So something that my story growing up, and really the reason that I started Crema was that my daughter was in the hospital for the first, my oldest daughter was in the hospital for the first seven months of her life. And then she was, she had a trach and a ventilator system and this whole, you know, crew of people taking care of her really for the first few years of her life. And that taught me this level of perseverance that I probably wouldn't have ever had to have had before. And now you take all those things and pull it into. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got George Brooks. George, thanks for making time. Just such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So for people who are not familiar with Crema, what do you guys do? Yeah, Crema is a design and development studio based in Kansas City. We do everything from consulting and coaching with teams that are trying to form inside of organizations all the way up through helping organizations build digital solutions. So we started as a user experience agency. That's my background. I'm a designer by trade. And we've since turned into a full stack product development shop. So we do everything from web to mobile applications. We've done IoT in the past. We've um, done some other things in that space, but primarily helping now enterprises build innovation solutions. So I think the first thing I want to talk about is, you know, we've, our consulting firm, we've done a lot of work in the special operations and intelligence agencies. And, uh, and then we've hired some of those guys come teach our corporate clients. And anyways, some of the really significant advancements made in those worlds had to do with cross-functional teams. Mm-hmm. And so as I've listened to your podcast, People of Product, but a lot of people talk about cross-functional teams, but you guys have really lived that to a point that as I listen to you describe what works, what doesn't work, like rookie mistakes, I found, anyways, I found it helpful because of the depth you guys have gone with it. Can you kind of talk about why you find it a competitive advantage? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something we're very passionate about, mostly because we found that we were able to accomplish so much more with our clients. Or if our clients were operating in that way, we saw them accomplishing more when they really focused on saying, how can we dream big, start small and value the perspective of others? And I think that's what it comes down to, right? Is is when you actually value the perspective of a diverse group of people, you're going to take greater input to move things forward faster. So cross-functional teams for us, at least is the way that Crema sets them up, really is about technology teams or innovation teams. They happen to look like a mix of designers, developers, product managers, test engineers, and then some level of the client or product owner being involved, right? What we found with that was instead of the time and friction of throwing ideas over walls where you say, I'm going to pay a consultant to come in and put together a specifications document, which will then get thrown over to another vendor or another group that will design out that specification or start to build out the information architecture for it. That will get thrown over another wall of the team that's going to finesse that, that's going to start building the APIs for it, that's going to start, you know, et cetera. By the time you get thrown over so many walls, what we found is by the time it got back to the person that was actually trying to solve the problem six months later, a year later, two years later, the problem was either gone, it was different, or we had solved something completely different. Rather than having that division of communication, remove those barriers, take a person from each of those teams and put them into a shared understanding where they can work together, then they make these micro decisions, right? Then they're making decisions on a daily basis, an hourly basis, and they're moving forward and solving problems faster because they're valuing perspectives. 
So that's just like the pure function of it. The kind of secondary part of that is that when you're working and thinking that way, when you have a culture that actually values the perspective of their peers, then they start to value the perspective of their customers. They start to value the perspective of their users. They start to listen for feedback and actually build the product that they need rather than the product that they think they want, right? That's just a, that's a posture thing, right? It's, it's about the way that we care for the people that are around us rather than just saying, I know what's best. I know what I want to build. Go build it. And then we'll see you on the other side. So I'll stop there. But that's, that's kind of just the basis of why we found it to be an incredibly powerful way to work and now we model it not only in the, 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 the teams we provide to our clients, but it's the way our leadership teams work. They're a cross-discipline group of leaders. It's the way our, our growth team or our marketing teams work. They're cross-functional marketing and growth teams. And they all work in this model because, again, they're valuing the perspective of the people around them. Well, I think I liked, I remember in one of your episodes, you were talking about this idea of like, Hey, designers probably want to hang out with designers and yeah. it's tempting to group the designers together. Yeah. And then the, these guys want to hang out with, you know, the coders want to hang out with coders or whatever. Right. And, and yet I can see like by resisting that and by like potentially like annoying people a little <laughs> bit of like, yeah, no, you can't just hang out with your design buddies. Right. Cause yeah. so I'm an art school dropout originally. And you and me uh, both. You and me both. I, I dropped out <laughs> so of art school. I, I, thought well. I thought we'd have that in common. Just that idea of like, <clears throat> I don't know, not not doing just what's natural, but being intentional. It just made a lot of sense to me. And and I thought I think there's a lot of us who we pat ourselves on the back of being humble and considering everybody's opinion, but then really kind of just doing what we we're going to do anyways, or doing what we've always <laughs> yeah, done. Fair, fair. And and I feel like you guys like are really living this like very intentional team makeup less than two pizzas yeah. to feed the team, small size, you know, is it, what, what do you feel there, like yeah. is kind of your ideal size? Yeah, it depends on, it depends on the initiative, but I think really the amount that you can achieve with like three to six people is insane. And it's, it's, it's surprising. I've, I've seen companies that had 40 to 50 engineers primarily in a room working together for years. And then I went back to leaders and said, what's your total investment? We're like, we're 10 million in. And I said, or you could have put two small product teams on it at a 10th of that price. And, and they, they started to shift to this model and they started to see the results. Yeah, it, what you, you said a word that I think is really important and that's intentional. It, this is insanely intentional work. Things don't happen on accident. It, like you said, you're naturally going to go find the people that look like you, think like you, talk like you, right? Humanity is, has proven that is true. I think what what you have to do is not not to not to say that that's a negative thing. There's some goodness that comes out of that, right? We can we do find a shared sense of purpose and in, in place when we do that. I we do both. So actually, to to kind of to point out what you you mentioned there is that people do gravitate towards the like-minded folks. We have what's called product teams. Those are the cross-functional teams, and then we have craft teams. And so a craft team is when maybe less frequently than the day-to-day -day work or you know the the thing that we're doing just to move an initiative forward what we say is that okay well across product teams let's take all the developers once a month twice a month whatever it is whatever they want to do it they can come out of their product teams meet together as a craft of developers and get better together hey how are you on your product team building an api today how are you using react today how is or oh, the product managers get together what what tools how what's the new atlassian jira thing what's you know whatever what are the ways that they can level up their skills, their craft together, and then take that back to the day-to-day -day work when they're not really working with other product managers, they're not working with other designers, mostly they're working with a cross-functional peer. So we, we do, we recognize that both are important and we actually have leaders in both of those arenas, both on the, the craft side and on the, the team side. But it's when they, they create that matrix of, of, you know, functional work to move forward, it, that's when it's magical, but it isn't very intentional. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to back up for a minute. Okay. Uh, you guys are in Kansas City now, and I know you've got remote people all over. Did you grow up there or where are you from? Um, I'm from Kansas, about a small town called Emporia, about an hour and a half from here. This was the big city close by. So I moved to Kansas City, gosh, coming up on 16 years ago, 17 years ago. Got married when I was a baby, so we were young and we we moved to the big city. Also known as the land of great barbecue. Oh, so it's so good. 
Although, you know, I've been to Jack Sacks and I've been a couple of places, but I, I feel like I need to come on like a tour, you know, just like oh, every yeah. night go, go around. Yeah. And I, man, you got to get some Joe's KC Q39s where it's at. It's the two totally different ends of the spectrum. Arthur Bryant's is the original. I mean, yeah, totally. We'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs> so thinking about how you grew up, how do you think that helped you in what you've done? That's a great question. I will say my my I was blessed to have really distinct parents in the way that they viewed the world together. My mom was an artist, so she just had this high level of creativity. She also is a, a kind of a natural born leader. So she she had this ability to see the world that wasn't yet there, right? Like that, that there was always this possibility, there's a confidence that came and I could create something. And she shared that with me. And I think that that's something I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have inside of me, which is this ability to just have a confidence to say, well, why, why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I try? On the flip side, my dad was just insanely curious. And so he would take me outside. We lived out in the country and he would take me outside and he'd lift up a rock and there'd just be bugs crawling over the place. He'd be like, I wonder why they do that. Like, look at them. Well, look, there's like six, there's an ant there. There's a roly poly over here, you know, whatever. And and then he would just, and then we would, then that evening would go and look at the stars and be like, wow, 10,000 years of light coming across the space to get to my eyeballs. That's where it stops. You know, that sense of wonder and awe and curiosity is just carried over to my, both my, my posture of saying, I, I want to be humble, that I have a lot to learn, confident that I can pull off learning almost anything. Um, curious to say, I wonder, I wonder why it is that way. I wonder why you see the world that way, right? But then perseverance. So something that my story growing up, and really the reason that I started Crema was that my daughter was in the hospital for the first, my oldest daughter was in the hospital for the first seven months of her life. And then she was, she had a trach and a ventilator system and this whole, you know, crew of people taking care of her really for the first few years of her life. And that taught me this level of perseverance that I probably wouldn't have ever had to have had before. And now you take all those things and pull it into building technology, building teams, building a company and perseverance, curiosity, humility, confidence. You have these traits, these postures that I think every team needs to mimic or try to create in some way. That's part of our framework. That's a part of the language that we're pulling together that we share across the team. These are these postures that we want to see people have. And I think it's shaped who I am for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's interesting these days how much art and creativity ends up being the background where people outside of entrepreneurship think that like all business people have these similar backgrounds and like wearing suits and stuff like, you know, like there's these, there's like the cliche version of, of the capitalist swine, right? Yes. Yes. And of yet course. I think about like so many of the people that have accomplished the most, like they weren't the best test takers. Maybe they got bad grades in school, but man, are they creative. And man, did they get encouraged to be creative growing up and like it never stopped, you know? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I I was not an academic. I My wife is far more an academic, which is great because she's in the healthcare field and you need academics in the healthcare field. I want them to be well-trained. But when it comes to, you know, technology and creative and innovative work where you, you, your, your disciplines are one of experimentation of exploration of trying new things and validating new ideas, you have to have that, that willingness to step out there and try things that maybe aren't a part of the original system. If the, you know, that the societies that created at least. Yeah. You know, I'm interested with, you know, in many ways, you know, the industry that you guys are doing this great work, you have clients like Adidas and, you know, big, big stuff happening. You know, it's an industry that when you and I were in high school, like no high school teacher is saying like, oh, do you want to have a shop that does this? It didn't exist. Right. Right. And, you know, our listeners know a lot about our real estate investment fund that we've got, the, the work we do there building these, these real estate investments. But something I don't talk about as much on the show is, at our consulting firm, these different CEOs that that I do strategy advisor work of like how to build a more sellable company and mm-hmm. how to get the most when they're selling their business, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just interested as like an industry insider, when you look at people in your space, the, the organizations that like they do have strong, reliable income, like they're growing and they're growing reliably and that, you know, it makes them attractive to a potential buyer. What do you think that those firms are doing different than not everybody in your space is doing? I think the companies that we, clients specifically that we've worked with, that we've seen do that really, really well. And some of them actually have sold their companies. 
they are in just laser focused on customer support. They care so deeply about the value that they're bringing to their customers and to their clients and to their, their market that nothing else matters, right? So it could be that they have an extremely simple product or service that they're offering, but they do it with such a high level of customer support and, and handholding and, and white glove, whatever you want to call that, that one, they have a loyal, loyal customer base who is willing to go through the ups and downs that is just business, right? Nothing's perfect. You're going to misstep. You're going you're gonna to do the wrong thing. You're going to have bugs in your software. It's fine. But when you have loyal customer base that's willing to stick with you through that, then you have market value, right? And then what's funny about that is that when you provide that level of service, people talk, right? And so what ends up happening is organically, they grow. And even, even in a sustainable way where they're not having to overinvest into marketing or a sales team that is way overpaid for the, the actual return on investment you're getting for those folks. Instead, they built a really great service that cared deeply about their existing customers and that spread. Hands down, that's what we saw every one of the customer clients that we've worked with, the teams that we worked with do really, really well. And, and just to give people some flavor, tell us, I mean, without naming names per se, but like, what what industries? How are they? Do they, are they people that you developed apps for? What what are they doing? Yeah. So, <laughs> the joys of what we do, we, we very very rarely can actually name who we work with. The ones on the websites are the the few, right? I'll use an example. There was a there was an organization that was building a, a chat system to connect. Happened to be in healthcare, so they were connecting dentists. They were connecting doctors with both patients as well as providers, other providers in the, in the space. They did it through a basically creating call centers, but call centers that instead of taking one call at a time, they were actually having multiple chats on websites, on the dentist website or things like that through you know just a simple portal. And it was a plug-in into whatever site you used. So we helped them build the solution. But what they were brilliant at is saying, and it was really the funny little things that, that optimized them serving their customer better. It was, oh, you know what? They have to have six different chats going at the same time. We need to make it so it works really well on dual monitors. I haven't thought about building a dual monitor app in a long time. That's such a, a simple thing, but why build that feature? Well, that feature was going to serve the ability to have more conversations for their customers to have better support. Little things like that ended up playing out in a big way. I think another example, we built a platform for a small business lending platform. This has been a few years back called Endurance Lending Network. They then merged to become Funding Circle, which is a really large um, UK-based small business lending platform. And their whole thing was that they did have a unique way that they were doing their underwriting process for lending money to, at the time, early on was franchise business owners, second time franchise business owners, and how they would rate those into pools and then the investment opportunity. But again, the platform wasn't really that complicated. What was really the finesse was how when somebody applied for a loan, they were on top of making sure that person felt like they were just the most special person asking for money in the world, right? And so any tool that they build out for them was really to make that that process so much easier, so much smoother when, than what they've uh, felt before going through a bank or through a, a lending system, which took weeks and months of paperwork and back and forth. And they said, what if we could just make this easy for you and you could do it in 15 minutes, right? That's about support. Now they ended up selling that company and they IPO'd two years ago. I mean, that's, that is a, that's a level of focus on customer that is unfortunately not the norm. You know, there's so many stories come to mind when you tell me about this, you know, Tony Shea, you know, with his unfortunate passing, he's been in the news a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to go, he and his partner invited me down to this thing called Catalyst Week, where they, they kind of curated these groups to come to Vegas for a week and see what North Las Vegas could be like. You know? Such a cool space, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and got to spend just a little bit of time with him and, and go on the tours of the, right. And, you know, when Jeff Bezos bought Zappos, when Amazon bought Zappos, he said, I get weak in the knees when I see a customer obsessed company like that, right? And yeah. pays a billion dollars for Zappos, right? And, right. you know, everybody, a lot of people know Eric Wan and, and Zoom these days, but, you know, like, I don't know, four years ago when we had him on the show and he wasn't a big deal yet, right? <laughs> right. It was so impressive. He's probably actually the most impressive customer service center person I have ever met. Mm. Back then, 
he had grown to, I want to say, I don't know, 140,000 users. I, I'm sure I'm going to misquote this, but like he'd grown to 140,000 users with zero marketing. Right. And, and it had been obsessive customer service to the point that if somebody canceled, he would email them personally, mm. say, hey, I'm the CEO of the company. I'm sad you're leaving. Da, da, da. And they'd write back things like, yeah, right. This is a bot. They'd be like, no, right. it's me. Do you want to hop on a Zoom right now? I'd love to talk to you about your experience with oh, us. I love and they're like, that. Just like, like, just so obsessed with this customer experience, right? And, and you know, he's a smart guy. He'd been at Cisco for years, mm -hmm. but there's lots of smart people. He's just like maniacal, like just intensity of like, this is, this is, this is the experience we're going to give people. It was actually the manager of Imagine Dragons, that band. Yeah. She had been on and, and she'd just been raving about this service. Like, oh, I manage this, managing this small band called Von Gray. And we just, we're not even, we're not in the same state. So we just do it all on Zoom. I'm like, well, why Zoom? Why not Skype? Why? She's like, oh my gosh, it's so much of a better experience. She's just raving about Zoom so much. I'm like, oh, we should check out that company. Right. Yeah. And that's how he got on the show. That's one of the reasons I think of the many options we've had that, that, Zoom became what it became. And I think every single company that we either, either worked with or partner with that ended up succeeding had a similar story. They were just so focused on their customers. They were so focused on value, which is really goes back to that kind of lean methodology of saying it's about outcomes over output, right? You can have people doing lots of things, producing lots of stuff, but if you're not achieving value, if you're not achieving some level of outcome, then it's just wasted time and effort. And so I'm I'm fascinated by anybody that is, is providing that level of service. It's one of the reasons that Dan and I, my business partner and I, we really focused on saying over the last five years, we've said, let's be in the business of replacing ourselves. So how can Dan and I never be the bottleneck of our organization's growth and our organization's ability to provide value? Because if every decision, if every conversation comes through him or I, I've only got so many hours a day and I have a family that still, still wants to see me, right? So how can we replicate our posture, our disciplines, our structures that run Crema and make Crema uniquely what it is so that every single person in the organization wants to bring that same level of quality care to our customers. They want to teach them how to do it to their users, et cetera. Oh, when it works, it's beautiful. Well, I'd love to talk about this. You know, we've, we've had a number of agency owners on the show and, and, you know, different agencies than yours, but, but sure. some relation, you know, relation. And a question that I have for a lot of them, I'd love to pose to you as well, is I think about the agency model in general. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the biggest problems that I see, so we've got a number of agency CEOs that have been consulting clients of ours over the years. And then sure. I have these like, you know, fancy ones on the show from, you know, Mechanism or just huge, yeah, huge names, right? Yeah. And what I find so often is that that these agency CEOs, founders, they they kind of get sick of doing everything and they do want to grow. So then they hire this business development person and everything's great, honeymoon period, and never works out. They fire them and go back to doing all the sales calls themselves, you know? And like, it's like, you know, you kind of like every 18 months, they go through that pattern. And, and yet there are these agencies that get much bigger and, you know, you guys are not some little four person shop. Like what, what are you up to now? We're approaching 50. Right. Yeah. And so you've obviously done systems that let's face it, 90% of agencies with hundreds and even thousands of employees. You guys are in like the top 10% of agencies yeah. by, you know, number of agencies over that number. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, because, you know, by, by people in the space count, they almost all work for big agencies, but by number of agencies that are big, they're almost all small agencies. Yeah, right? absolutely. The lion's share of them are, you know, anywhere between three to eight people. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, I guess my question is, Breaking out of that three to eight people mold and getting mm -hmm. to basic, getting to almost 50, what do you think you've done differently? I trust people. I, I, I really do. By default, I think Dan and I lead with trust. I think there's a period in time when I actually used to say the opposite, where you have to earn trust that then you can re withdraw from. And I, I've kind of switched that around to say that, you know, I think if you lead with trust and you, you, you accept the best intentions and understand and have the, the resilience, the grit to sit patiently <laughs> and, and wait to see it done a different way than maybe you would have done it. So I did, I hired my first salesperson five, almost six years ago. And that was a big thing. Cause I mean, I was the sale, I, I brought in every sale. 
he did a few things in the first few months where I was like, what are you doing? Why, why are you, why are you doing it that way? And it made me real, <laughs> it made me really uncomfortable. And then what I realized was his way was better. He, he was a better sales guy than I was. And I would say yes to anything because of course I'm looking at the, the checkbook back here going, we better get another sale in. And he's going, yeah, but let's just wait and get the right one. Oh, I can do that. We can do that. Well, and there's seasons when you can't do that, right? I mean, that's business, right? You, you'd still say yes to certain things. But I think it is trusting in people. The other thing is, is our turnover in the industry, the average is, you know, less than 18 months, I think is pretty average, especially between agencies. And of course, in technology sector as a whole, that the, the, the shift in people moving is pretty high. In 2020, you know, with what, 40, almost 45 people, we had one person that I, I had, I let go for for good reason and he's kept in touch and still a good friend and then one person leave to go start a company with his dad our turnover rate is next to zero like we're talking single digits and the reason for that is is if you give a place going back to the, what we talked to where we started out if you give a place where people feel like they're valued that they get to actually contribute to every conversation where they feel ownership and autonomy and they're trusted, they're going to do great work and they're going to stick around. They're going to be loyal. They're going to love their job. And, and you know, then it makes it easier. Then I don't have to step back in every 18 months. I haven't been on a sales conversation other than my sales team saying, Hey, it'd be really great if the owner showed up to this meeting. I'm like, okay, cool. That'd be fun. And, and I step in and be like, Hey, it's so great to meet you. You're going to love these people. If you need something from me, let me know, but you probably won't. They're amazing. You know, and then they can do their work. That's hard though. I say that as if I've I've just done that easily. That's me just sitting in my room sometimes just like, you know, curled up in the corner, you know, <laughs> you know, just going, I, I hope it works. I hope it works. But I think the reality is, is that if you have the patience and the grit to allow it to work, it really, it can be powerful. You know, you think about, you think about the idea of, let's say if you guys were building more of a sellable business, mm. uh, but potentially planning on just keeping it, like having your, you know, Essentially, selling it to your own family office, sure. and having professional management run it, and you're just the you're like you're literally just the owners, not yeah, even showing yeah, up, yeah. kind of a yeah. thing. You know, whether you're selling it to your own family office or whether you're whether you're gonna sell it to somebody else, this idea of being able to have faith that it's gonna reliably pump out the cash mm-hmm. and ideally grow as right. it pumps out the cash, right. you know, for, for me, uh, this is my observation. I'd be interested in your thoughts. It does feel like. Specifically, the agency world, there's such a temptation to paint a new painting for every client mm. instead of instead of have packages and and benefit from duplication and and almost like productize your offering so that somebody other than the best artist of all time can sell it. Do you <laughs> right. see it any different than that? Do you would you describe it differently? What's your thought there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this it depends on what you're doing as an agency. In the custom software development world, it is difficult to create packages because by definition you're doing something that's called custom. The way that we think about it is that we package the process, we package the approach. So it's, I'm very clear with saying, here's the people that you should expect to have on your team. I, I won't just farm out one dev. We're going to be working as a team. I'm going to bring my processes. They're going to bring their tools. You wouldn't hire a plumber to come in and be like, oh, no, 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 by the way, I need you to use the tools I bought from Walmart, right? You're going you're gonna to expect that the plumber is going to come with the tools to get the best job done. And so we'll say, hey, you have to understand we're going to bring our product management systems. We're going to bring our communication methodology. As soon as you're a client with us, you will never receive an email from us. We don't use email. It's an old way of communicating. And instead we say, welcome to our new Slack channel and welcome to your product management system where you're a part of the team. I don't have anything to hide. You get to see the full process. When we do estimations, you're going to be in the meeting when we're estimating how long and how hard that's going to be to, to, to do it. That tech takes a level of com- discomfort that a person has to go th- um, through for the first few weeks and then, then they fall in love. But I think that we talk about productizing really the, that approach of those cross-functional teams. I think next to it though, we do have certain offerings that we know because they are repeatable that we can say we have a fixed understanding of what this looks like, the time it takes and the cost that it is. And it's really easy. So design sprints. 
It's a really easy way to approach solving a problem in a short period of time. They're anywhere between five to 10. And you know, I can tell you exactly what it's going to look like every time, exactly how many people I need in the room. And it's fixed cost, right? I can do those over and over and over again. We have teams that are focused on doing those and they're great at it. That is, that's kind of more on the consulting coaching side, which is a bit different than the custom software development where let's be honest, the idea that you have with custom software when you start will not be the thing that you end up launching, you know, at, at go live time because it iterates, it refines, you, you seek feedback. So uh, you're right though. You, when you say that an agency is not scalable, I am very clear that I am not in a scalable business model. I'm going to invest in other things and I'm going to take money out of the business to, to maybe run some risks other places, or even we create our own um, innovation products. We've built our own products and sold them. But no, the actual business of the service side, it's not scalable. This is a long haul game. Well, but it's, it's obvious. What you've done is obviously much more scalable than the like 90% of folks out there that are three to eight people. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure. You know, what, I think that's a really valuable insight. This, you know, how many other services businesses could actually benefit from what you just said of, we don't, we don't just sell a product, right? Because that's going to change every time, but mm. we do sell a process like right. that. That feels so duplicatable. That feels like something that, you know, you could hire a new sales rep and teach them how to sell a process without expecting them to be the artist, engineer, developer that's going to say what the product is. Yeah. He's going to say, here's the process and here's the output you can expect from a process like that, rather than saying, this will be your output. Because I feel like that's where the huge disconnect is. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And even if I think about our sales team, none of our sales folks are previous sales folks. If anything, they're they've either had entrepreneurial ventures or they've had something where they're they're coming at it from a really high level sense of empathy to the clients, the client's seat. So they can sit down and go, you may or may not have built technology before. It's confusing, it's hard, it's nuanced, it's technical by definition. Let me come sit next to you and and I'm going to paint a picture for you, like you said, but that picture isn't going to be how an API works. This the, the picture is going to be, here's how a team is going to bring your idea to reality. And this team's going to work with you and you're not going to be in the dark. You're going to be, you're going to be sitting in the room and oh, by the way, we bring product managers into that. And product managers are really good at holding your hand when, when it gets confusing and hard. So, you know, l- let them do that. And when you have an opinion, share it. And when we have an opinion, we're going to share it too. And I think if you can if you can sit down and tell that story, you can train somebody to do that has no technical background, no design background, no product management background. Because what you're doing is saying, tell a good story, make sure that people realize they're working with people, not with robots, and and that we really do care about people. We really care about the individuals we're serving. I think that is scalable. Caring for others is a scalable business model. It sounds so simple when you say it. This is like you—you you need to write a book. This is gonna be great. Actually, we, we, are, we are working on a, a little bit of a book in that space. So my brain has been modeling this out a bit. But yeah, it—it's it, okay. worked for the last ten years. Now, granted, we've been in this for eleven years, and we're only fifty people. We could have grown a lot faster. This is Dan and I's first company, and we kind of said, "Well, what if we built the company we wanted to work for?" You know, and so we we just did it slow, and we we made mistakes, and we we tried different things, and we experimented, and when it worked, we built a process around it. Said, "Yeah, let's keep doing that." And then we constantly say, all the time, at least once a week, if we are the same company two years from now that we were two years ago, we'll be obsolete. And so we have to be innovating on ourselves. If we're not practicing what we're preaching, then we're just we're a fraud, right? So we are, we are always refining our processes. We're always refining our tools. We're always refining our postures because it's the only way that you're going to survive in yeah, 2020. What's an, what's an example of a recent one? So we're, we're actually in the process of, of, of adapting our, our leadership model because we're getting bigger. And one of the things that we said is if we want to double in size, which we've said we might do over the next couple of years, and we get to that 80 to 100 person size agency, the way that our leadership is set up is not sustainable. It's not sustainable when we we do value having a very frequent one-on-ones, making sure that people are seen and heard, even more so in a world where we're all working remote. And so we wanted to change up the model for how people both learn in their craft or in their skill, and then how people um, feel like they're seen and heard on a day-to-day basis. 
And so what that ended up meaning is putting in what we call group directors or people that oversee that day-to-day work overseeing a small group of teams, and then also putting in craft directors that oversee the particular service offering crafts that we have. So our development craft, our design craft, our product management craft, our test engineering craft. And each of those can say, how can I, and you think of it as a matrix, can I, how can I work to help you level up in your craft so you know that you have room to grow at Crema, room to have impact and influence, while at the same time you're supported in your day-to-day work. And we've, we've had models that worked when we were 20 to 30, 40 people, but it wasn't going to work when we were 100. And so when we started kind of looking out and saying, how, we, how might we shift this model around? We, we spent the last you know, month and a half, two months, modeling this over and over and over again and actually reaching out to the consultants and people and saying, hey, what if, what if, what if? And then we landed on something. We're like, oh, this still feels like crema. This is still us. But yet it's, it's, got some, it's got some finesse to it to take us to the next level. I think the second thing is that we're always playing with tools. We're tool nerds. We build tools and we like using tools. So, you know, trying out new platforms, especially in 2020. We were a remote first organization already. So going remote wasn't hard. But we wanted to look for, for tools that allow us to replicate that experience of being able to, and everybody's been talking about this, but being able to have a, a side conversation very easily. So we've been testing a few things out. I, I, I won't say we've landed on one we love yet because I don't think anybody's solved the problem well. But um, trying to think of how to, you know, Slack and Zoom are great, but they force you to say, I'm going to jump into the room and see if anybody's in the room. What I wanted was to have like what we used to have at the pour over bar where we'd be pour over, making coffee pour overs and you'd see three or four people grouped there and you could walk up to that group and say, Hey, can I be a part of your conversation? So we're looking for ways to replicate that. And that's just those little tiny refinements. They are not big. I mean, maybe the reorg is a little, little bit, but honestly, it's just the next iteration. It's the next step on us continuing to refine who we are. You know, I'm interested as you said, you're doing research, you're looking at consultants. What's mm-hmm. your criteria? As you're choosing your criteria for for who like for a consultant, what does that look like for you? Yeah, most of the consultants we work with now, I I saw them working with other companies I was really impressed by. We actually we met this organization called Form. It's a small consultant that works primarily with creative and technology groups in the UK. And they're based out of Liverpool. And I, but I kept seeing them showing up in the background photos and the background blog posts of all these agencies that I was just like, oh my gosh, these people are incredible. And so I reached out to him. I said, Hey, what do you do? And how do you, how, why are you in all the places that I love? And they, they said, well, this is, you know, we help people move their, their agencies forward or move their technology organizations forward. And, and actually it was funny because they immediately, when they were like, well, we don't have a lot of people in the States that we want to work with per se. And I said, that's fair. I said, maybe just have a conversation with us and see if we're different. I, I, when I work with a consultant, I want transparency. I want honesty. I want someone who's going to say, love what you guys are doing. You know, a good pat in the back feels good every once in a while. You know, I don't want it to just be beating us up all the time. But I also want them to say, have you considered this? Or how might we go down this path? And you can tell pretty quickly how good a consultant is based off of how good their questions are. If they're asking really good questions, they're a good consultant. If they're telling you what to do, they're probably not the best consultant. I find that the relationship we have, they're just really, really good at asking very thoughtful, powerful, meaningful questions. Second thing in that, just to give kudos to form and our experience with them is they, they do similar to what we preach, which is we care, they keep care deeply about people and about work. And so they have two, they would call it their bicycle. Like the two different wheels on their bicycle are around organizational innovation and structure and process and around personal leadership development. And so when you start thinking about, you know, one of the guys that I meet with on their team is effectively my counselor to say, hey, I know this works hard. How are you? And I think that that balance between those things where it's not purely process and it's not purely emotion, but it's actually both, that's, that's, that's human work. I think people should be doing more human work. And I think a good consultant can do both. Yeah. You know, the next question that occurs to me is I, I, you, you're obviously a very perceptive person. My question is, when you think about the future of your space, what do you see coming down the pipeline that maybe, you know, outsiders or people who don't live and breathe it like you do, don't, don't recognize is coming down the pipe? That's a great question. I think if you were to say specifically in the space of 
you know, technology and innovation teams, I think that we're going to see the continued acceleration of these, these micro enhancements. You're going to see less people coming out with these massive disrupt, disruptive, like big key changing moments and more us seeing micro enhancements happen really, really fast. But the scale and the speed at which those things happen is just going to increase beyond what anybody thought was even possible. So I think that's where you'll see things like, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning or, you know, internet of things or 3D printing, all those kind of hot topics are really as a means to say, how can you actually take what is big monolithic changes and splice them down into smaller, more incremental changes? And I think that's where you'll see innovation happening faster. And then I I think the second piece of that, and and this is why I'm so passionate about it, I think people were going to, the wave has gone out or the wave went out through the 90s, the early 2000s of a way of working that was still based off of the manufacturing line, right? That there was a very supervisory macro-managed process. You only did what you did and then you passed it down the line and somebody else did it. Going back to, back to cross-functional teams, you will see more autonomous ways of working, really more like the military works, where they they have a certain level of vision and purpose that is up here, but then it's distributed through these cross-functional, cross-skilled teams that can be out on the field, in the field, making in the moment decisions and moving things forward faster. So I think it's, it's, it is going to be pace. Pace is going to increase. And I think with that, you're going to have to lean on people that you trust more, which is, I, I think we are in a globalized economy. So that's one of the reasons I don't outsource my development because I have not yet figured out how to do that in a way where I, I still have that high level of trust and high level of creative thought that happens in proximity, right? And so I think you're going to see that, that pendulum continue to swing back and forth, but pace is going to go up real fast. What do you think the implications are for, for startup founders or other people, you know, got a, got a small, medium-sized business, they're, they're rapidly trying to grow, they want to sell at some point, maybe who don't consider themselves a, a pure play technology company. I think every, every company is a software company now, but of course, but you know, who don't think about themselves as a technology company, what's an implication or what's something that the rest of us can do to get ahead of that curve instead of getting smacked by that curve of pace change. Yeah. I think that a lot of companies, um, especially small businesses, and we, we hear, this is a lot of the conversations that we vet, they feel like in order to be a technology company, they have to build custom technology. And I think you now have a marketplace of SaaS solutions that can solve 90% of our problems from a business perspective. And you can utilize those solutions to become a technology company. So I think that what, what I want to see more small businesses doing is, is adopting existing solutions faster, implementing them into their environments, into their culture, into their process, into their workflows, whether it's distribution or sales or marketing, et cetera getting used to using technology more, it becomes part of their muscle so that if they then decide, I want to build something that I have, you know, like personal intellectual property in, that it, they now understand that software is an ecosystem, right? I use Salesforce, but my Salesforce also works with my inventory management system. And my inventory management also happens to work with my insurance policy, right? I mean, all of these things are now communicating with each other and nothing stands alone, just like a cross-functional team, right? It, I think that I want more small businesses to be okay touching and bringing technology into their space so that if they want to build IP, that they don't feel like they have to replicate everything that everyone else is doing, but instead they go, you know, interesting, I see a gap. I see a gap between my inventory management system and my sales team. It'd be really nice if I just had a little custom thing right there. That's a lot cheaper to build. <laughs> it's a lot more effective to go after something that where you're going to solve this small little problem. Then when you, when you start building a, an organization or a company that you want to sell off, you not only have your systems and processes in place for sales, distribution, et cetera, whatever your service or product is, you might have a little extra candy in there of, of some IP that's unique to how you were doing it because you built something custom in between. It just you increases know, your value. Yeah. What I really like about that is, you know, so on our, in our real estate business, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can, we can just call like wealthy entrepreneur buddies who 
you know, they got the little bit of money. They're doing like exciting stuff, buying Ferraris and angel investing with their friends. But I'm, then not got the big, I'm not there yet, but, <laughs> but then they've got the big chunk of money they want to just not lose. Right? right. Of course. And so we're saying like, Hey, do you want to come own this building with us? They put it in 50 or hundred grand and yep. a bunch of us buy some multi-million dollar building together. Right. That, you know, at this point we can still do that, you know, phone calls and steak dinners and you know what I mean? Of course. Right. Yeah. But what's fascinating to us is the, the way that the jobs act has really changed something that, you know, very often is 50 or hundred thousand dollar minimums. And, and now you've got ways that are actually efficient enough that you can let people in for 50 bucks or 500 bucks or something. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's not illegal anymore. This is bonus. <laughs> okay. They were doing it anyways, but they were kind of having loopholes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, we look at, we look at some of the equity crowdfunding folks mm-hmm. and they've done large volumes. So they've invested in personalized apps and there's dashboards and there's, you know, and then, you know, for folks who, who are newer to that space, it's like, wow, that feels like an insane amount of investment. That must be super expensive. Right. But as you talk, it makes me think more of like, yeah, you know what, maybe you got HubSpot for this and you got this for that. And if this could just talk to that and, and it makes me think like, you know, some of the things we've always planned on doing, maybe we can do a lighter version of that sooner than we thought. Oh yeah. You can, is the short answer to that. And honestly, you should, because what you're going to find is that you, your vision for maybe with a platform that you wanted to build is probably not what you would have ended up building. And so instead, again, like we went back to earlier, use some things off the shelf to solve, you know, the, the normal problems and then your unique value prop in the middle there, you know, work on building that. And, and then maybe eventually you want to replace Salesforce because you want to do it in your own way. But that's not your product's purpose. Your product's purpose is whatever that unique value prop was in between. So start there, integrate, which, oh, by the way, is going to be better anyways, because then when somebody wants to come like say, hey, yeah, I want to use your thing, but I don't really need your CRM. Oh, well, interesting. That's cool. We integrate with every other CRM as well. That's already done, right? Or at least that thought process is already done. And then you will continue to validate that it actually is something worth building for your customers because you may find long and short of it is they still want to have the steak dinner, right? They don't want to go peruse a Zillow-like experience to to see the investment opportunities. They really want you to just come and say, no, you know me, trust me, let's get this deal done. That's okay. But if you want to, you know, if you want to create this space between, yeah, start small, dream big, start small. (laughs) I love that. Well, besides coming on shows like this, you guys are doing, you guys are doing a lot. YouTube, you've got your own podcast. What, what's that experience been like starting your own podcast? You know, the podcast has been therapy for Dan and I. So a majority of the podcast for us is actually, we decided that we wanted to have a place where Dan and I could process through, you know, so a lot of these concepts that you and I talked about. It's stuff that we were naturally doing because it's him and I's personality, but we said, I mean, we need to give, we need to give words to some of this stuff. And so how might we create a space where we actually do it pretty transparently? And so our people of product podcast, which previously was called option five, so option five was this idea that years ago, we went, we were going up for a bid on a, a big software platform for an entrepreneurship foundation here in Kansas City, big organization. It was the biggest project we've ever done. We weren't qualified to do the project, I'll just say that. And we, we actually kept the people, we don't normally do this, but we kept our team late and we were, we were ideating all these ways that we were going to pitch it on the whiteboard and it felt really cool. And then at the end of it, we were like, or we could just say option five, which was say yes and figure it out. Like, how do we just go and say, trust us, we can pull it off. We'll find the way to get it done. We're not going to justify too much. Let's just go for it. And it worked. They were like, yeah, cool, let's do it. And <laughs> and then we looked back and we started saying, man, we had a lot of option five moments, right? You know, there's the four ways that you're like, this is the most thoughtful, brilliant way to do it. No, no, this one is, or here's four different ways. It's going to be great. Or we could just say option five and, and take a leap of faith and is kind of what you're talking about. Take that risk to step forward into something where you're humbly confident to know, well, I've got a lot to learn, but I'm confident we'll, we'll figure it out. So that's what that was option five and now people of product. And then people of product for us has really been a space where when we do interviews, it's an opportunity to, to have a similar conversation where you and I um, are talking here of where is it that people are trying to do good work? How is good work getting done? How are teams accomplishing more together rather than in departments? And that's just been such a, a blessing and such a cool way to, to hear some stories that we wouldn't have access to if we didn't have a podcast. And then the YouTube channel, I mean, that... That was, we started that a while ago. That was three or four years ago. And we were doing the kind of vlogger style. Like I literally was holding the camera up in front of my face, walking around. I felt like such an idiot in the office. 
And it became like such a great way to expose our culture. And so now what we have is it's twofold. One, we have 150 some odd videos now out there. And some of them are like very, very technical, like trying to explain an idea. Some of them are fun and cultural. And we've had clients that have come back and said, hey, we're vetting you between three other massive like global agencies, but we just spent like the last three hours watching your YouTube videos. And we're not going to work with anybody but you because we know what you're like and we love it. <laughs> wow, a, a freaking YouTube you know, channel. Same thing with recruiting. We have never used an agency to recruit anybody. And I was talking to another agency owner recently and he was struggling to find talent. And we just put up, we're hiring again after kind of holding still for a little bit, like a lot of people did over the summer. And we opened up for some developers. We had 175 developers apply for a job at Crema. Now, wow. one, that, that just created a lot of work for us to vet through. And some of those are going to be not great quality, but we don't have a problem recruiting because again, we've we've spent so much work saying, hey world, here's we're transparent. This is what we're like. I, I love talking about exactly how we think. And, and, and I can tell you lots of mistakes that we've made, but we're, we, we care about our people. And if you get on here, you're probably not going to want to leave. So no, nobody's told that. People are told, I'm going to pay you the most and you're going to have, you know, you, you know, whatever this is. And, and so I think that those, those are the outcomes of creating content like that. I've created a growth team inside of Crema that just is dedicated to pumping out that content. Everybody on staff now is required to write two pieces a year or shoot two pieces of a year. So they're all contributing to the, the story because they're the experts. It's been so much fun. It's probably one of the favorite thing, my favorite things to do now. So. That's right. How big is your team that, that takes care of that? The growth team is four, five people. So we have a, a director of growth, a video editor who's awesome. She shoots and edits everything and also does the podcast, a marketing specialist who um, really looks at the numbers and SEO and trying to figure out what's maybe some topics that we want to position ourselves to and a, a content or a copywriter who makes sure that it, it actually sounds like we know what we're talking about when we, when we should push publish. So yeah, that's a riot. It's fun. Well, I know we're winding down here. What's, what's some of the, what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? A bunch of things just popped through my head. I think I think that that one of my mentors was probably where they instigated this idea of replacing myself. I think when you're good at something, it makes you feel really good, right? And so you want to keep doing that, and you like that people value that you do that. I'm a designer by trade. I haven't really designed anything in a while. I do miss it. I I, I design stuff on the side just for fun now. But I think that that step of saying well, it's okay to let go. And then to ask yourself what's next, that was really powerful for me as a leader, as an entrepreneur, to learn how to to kind of intentionally step into that, embrace it. So I think for anybody that wants to build a company that will grow beyond them, be willing to replace yourself and be okay with it. Because I, I mean, I'm in another season of that. I've just just put a leadership team in place that will effectively run the studio. What am I supposed to do now? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to build, you know, build up our podcast. I'm going to shoot more videos. Like you start to think about what you can do next, but it is that it is uncomfortable. And so you have to be willing to kind of sit in that discomfort. I think the second thing that is just a fun, that's what led us to creating the podcast and the YouTube channel is I had an entrepreneur, his company was, you know, tens of millions in revenue and, and had 300 plus employees. And he said, take pictures. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you'll forget you'll forget what it was like when you were five people. You'll forget what it was like when you were 10 people. So just take lots of pictures. And so we, we kind of said, well, what if we shot video instead? And that's what became the YouTube channel. I said, well, take pictures just because I think there's so much value in remembering where you've come from, both the good and the bad of that. Remembering that you've survived a lot more than you'll give yourself credit for, even if right now feels like the worst. So I think I'd say replacing yourself and, and taking pictures are two simple things. I love it, man. This is a great conversation. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate well, it. Uh, I'm excited. Yeah. So one last time, why don't you give us the company website and where people can find your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So it's crema.us. Crema.us is the company site where you can check out our agency and the work that we do there. I'd love to help you out if we can. And then check out People of Products. It's everywhere. So Spotify, iTunes, I like Pocket Cast. That's my kind of po podcasting platform of choice. So anywhere anywhere you can find a podcast, you can subscribe there. And then check out our YouTube channel. It's actually Crema Lab. We used to be called Crema Lab. We dropped the lab because it sounds like criminal lab at a party when you're trying to tell people what you do. And we're not a criminal lab. So uh, Crema Lab is, is still the name on, on YouTube, but you can check out some of our videos there. That's great. Okay. Bye, everybody.